Welcome to Listening with Leaders. I'm Doug Noel, lawyer turned peacemaker. I teach executive leaders how to listen to emotions rather than words so that they can become the leaders everyone wants to follow. And I teach those same leaders how to be authentically present, available, and connected to their families, despite being insanely busy. I have learned that we are 98% emotional and only 2% rational. Learning how to listen to emotions is, in my experience, the foundational skill of life. Stick around to the end of the show, and I'll reveal how you can be on our next guest in 15 to 20 minutes. So let's get started. Paige Arnhoff-Finn, you are the founder and CEO of global branding and digital marketing firm Mavens and Moguls, based in Cambridge, Massachusetts, and found on the web at mavensandmoguls.com. Thank you so much for showing up and sharing your wisdom with my audience. Well, Doug, thanks for having me. I'm so excited to be here today. So tell us tell us a little bit about Mavens and Moguls. How did it start and what do you do? So I joke that I'm the accidental entrepreneur. I was not looking to start a company. If you and I had met when I was in college or business school, I would have told you I was going to be the next Meg Whitman. I, I really <laughs> thought I was going to have a Fortune 500 career. Um, you know, that was really the path I thought I was on. and you know, life, life takes lots of detours and twists and turns. And I started very much on a corporate path. And my first marketing job was at Procter & Gamble, um, which is maybe one of the most successful, largest consumer products, packaged goods companies in the world. I was in senior marketing roles at Coca-Cola, um, you know, another big Fortune 500 company. But in about 1997, I got bitten by the dot-com bug. You know, the internet was starting to take off, internet 1.0. And I was just intrigued by everything that I was seeing happening on the technology front. And I left my big, cushy marketing job at Coke to go join a startup that no one had ever heard of before. And I just wanted to kind of fasten my seatbelt and get on the ride. It looked like a lot of fun. And... I joined an internet startup back in Los Angeles in the late 90s, mid to late 90s, and we went public in 99 and we were sold to Yahoo. And then I did another startup as the head of marketing and that company got sold and I did a third startup as the head of marketing and that also went public and got sold. So, you know, I, I had a ball doing it and I, I really- had just- I, I hope you had good stock options. <laughs> I did in all, all three cases. Um, good for you. Yeah. So I, I call them my three base hits. I made a little bit of money three times, but you know, I'm not Sheryl Sandberg. I didn't work for Google or <laughs> Facebook or LinkedIn. So I did not make $2 billion. Um, but, um, but I had a ball. I learned a ton. And um, after the third startup uh, got, uh, got bought and went public, um, 9-11 hit and marketing pretty much shut down across the board. The stock market dropped. Everybody got scared. They wanted to conserve their cash. They laid off their marketing department. They froze their marketing budgets. And so the marketing jobs just dried up. And I thought I was just going to hang out and, you know, kind of take a pause. But because I had run successful marketing campaigns and departments for three early stage startups that were all venture backed. You know, a lot of the investors and CEOs and private equity VC guys came calling after 9-11 and said, 
hey, we, we need some help. Um, you know, we don't have a marketing department and we, we need to hire some experts. Can you help us? You did something before. Can you come back? And my first instinct was, you know, I'm not a consultant. I don't work, uh, I, you know, I don't work in an ad agency. I don't work at a consulting firm. I'm the client. I'm the chief marketing officer. And what the people were telling me was, Paige, we don't need any more PowerPoint. We don't need any more recommendations. We just need people who can roll up their sleeves and get stuff done. And that's what you've been doing for us for years. Can't you help us? So my husband's like, Paige, there's a red flashing sign in front of you. Go help them. Send them an invoice. You know what to do. You've been doing this for years. So I called a bunch of people I had worked with earlier in my career at the big companies at the small companies, and everyone had just lost their jobs after 9-11. So I had people, I had projects, and I put them together. Wow. And, um, we've been at it ever since. I called the women, the marketing mavens, and the guys, the marketing moguls. And here we are 21 years later, still going strong. And, and just so everybody knows, uh, you are Stanford undergrad, Harvard Business School graduate. So no dummy. <laughs> <laughs> no I dummy. <laughs> I make mistakes just like everybody. Well, but I know, I mean, but but obviously, just so so people can get a, a sense of this that you know you've been well educated and well prepared for your role, and maybe models have taken off as a result of that. It's well, not. It, it's funny, Doug. I have to say, a lot of people say, "Wow, you're an overnight sensation." You know, within well, no. the first <laughs> three years of my company, we we broke over a million in revenue, and everybody said, "Oh my God, how did you do that? You came out of nowhere." And it's like, well, I've been working for decades, and all the roads of my career kind of converged into Mavens and Moguls. Some of my earliest clients were people that I knew a decade or two before that I had worked with in previous lives or we had gone to school together or our paths had crossed and you work hard, you leave a great impression and they find you again and they recommend people hire you and they become great references and great testimonials for your, your brand and your business. So, I mean, in a way, yes, I, I've had a world-class education and I've worked for some incredible companies, but each one of those experiences just built on the one before, and it all led to this experience. Wow. So what is it that you, as you think about what you do day to day, I know you've got a, your, your people are dispersed all over the world, right? It's, it's almost all virtual. Correct. And, and what is it that you like most about what you do today? What really so, gets your juices going? I, I think I, in my DNA, I'm a problem solver. I love fixing things. And I think I'm naturally very curious and I love asking questions and just listening, kind of like you. Right. I think I'm a really good listener. And, you know, I, before the pandemic, I would go to lots of networking events, networking breakfasts, lunches, you know, events. And I'd be sitting next to someone at a breakfast or I'd be, you know, networking at a, in a ballroom somewhere. And you ask an open-ended question and you just shut up and listen. And people will tell you all the things that bother them and all the things that are not working in their lives and their companies. And I can't help myself. I'll follow up and I'll say, you know, it was so great chatting with you over breakfast this morning. You mentioned X, Y, Z. And I was thinking, I saw this great article. We have a client that had a similar problem. Here's what we did. 
If you ever want to talk about that more, please give me a ring. You know, here's here's an article. Here's some information. You know, I'm always happy to chat. And that's that's it. And nine times out of 10, they follow up and they go, oh, my God, you know, you heard me. That's exactly my problem. Thank you so much. That article was terrific. You know, what you did for that client is exactly what we need. Can I get you to come back and meet with my CEO? Because we we have a problem and we have a budget and we don't know how to fix it. You. And so <laughs> that's really, I mean, you know, I don't have a capabilities presentation or a PowerPoint. I don't do stuff in a kind of generic way. I, you know, I just like to target my thinking to like exactly what I hear the person say they need. And I can make an introduction. I can introduce them to people that are really good at what they do. That is exactly the needle in the haystack for what, what problem they're trying to fix. And that makes that, you real. I can, you, you get really excited. I do. You, I can't help excited. myself. It's it's it. Yeah, you, you, I mean, you just exude energy when you think about listening to people, helping them solve problems that gives you a lot of joy and satisfaction. It does. And, and it makes you a lot of money. And, and I, I get very excited. I get a lot of energy, you know, from smart people. I love working with people that I respect and admire and working with and for people that I want to help. And that gets me out of bed every day, really jazz. Like I never get bored. I never get tired of doing what I'm doing. I don't work because I have to pay the bills. I work because I love what I do. And, you know, I'm still relatively young in my mid fifties. And I, you know, I just, I think there are a lot of problems that I can help fix. And that that really gets you juiced up. Totally. Really excited. And, 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 you know, the gratitude you receive for doing what you do is, is also extremely rewarding. Without a doubt. No, I mean, you know, I I really honestly believe that like our organization, we want to help people that are working on great brands, then they feel like they're almost like the best kept secret. But if they have um, a great story to tell and it's not being told, we want to shine that light and we want to give them the exposure to share their gifts, their products, their services, their stories to help people solve their problems. And that is really motivating. It's really gratifying. And I feel like irrespective of the size of the company or the size of the budget, we want to help, you know, help those brands, help those products and services get the visibility they deserve because there are just a lot of people who could benefit from knowing about some of these hidden jewels. And I just think the more the more momentum we can we can help them attract a better audience and get their stories out there it's a win win everybody's going to benefit from that the company or organization's going to benefit and the people they're serving are because they're solving problems too every day so what advice would you give to a young woman today starting out who wants to follow kind of the track that you followed So I think you have to do what's intuitive to you. Like what is unique, special, and different about you? What are your strengths? And you build around your own strengths. You can't kind of copy other people because everybody's different. So you have to figure out what makes you tick and what you're really good at and what's 
what's your special sauce? And when you figure that out, you need to crank it up to the hilt. And don't be threatened by people in other lanes because they're not your competition. Like, I think a lot of people beat themselves up. They think they have to be perfect or they have to compete with like all kinds of uh, people that have different strengths and different interests. And that's just not the case. I mean, I'm very much of a growth mindset kind of person where, you know, life is not a zero sum game. If you win, it doesn't mean that I lose. We can both win. Um, We're not dividing a pie into eight slices. We can both figure out how to bake more pies. And so the universe is is a place of abundance, not a place of lack. Absolutely. And so figure out where what you bring to the table creates that multiplier effect. And when you do that, it's magic. I mean, it's like you have more energy. You're not getting drained. You're getting more energized. You're figuring out more ways to help people. You get more creative. And so I would just tell people, stick to what you're best at. I mean, one of the things when I worked in big corporate jobs, you know, every year you'd have your performance review and you'd sit down with your boss and they'd say, this is what you're good at, but here are the opportunity areas where you really need to improve. We need to work on these weaknesses and make them stronger. I don't really think that's the best approach. I think the things that I'm not great at, someone else is going to be really great at. Let them do that stuff. Let me shine in the areas where I flourish. And if you give me the stuff that I'm the best at, there's nobody that's going to do better because that's the stuff where I am going to be a number one. And I feel like I've built my company where, like you said, I have this network of amazing marketing talent all over the world and people just do the stuff they love doing. So if you really love market research, that's really all you have to do. You don't have to do PR. You don't have to do media budgets. You don't have to do um, build websites, like just do what you love doing. And when I form teams where everybody's doing their sweet spot, like the stuff that they do best, that's magic because, you know, we're over delivering on everything because people can't help themselves. We're all a little bit type A neurotic, I think, because you get excited. And even though we've quoted the client, like, okay, here's our budget, here's what we're doing. But when you get in the zone, you're just doing a little extra because you're loving it. You're not watching the clock. You're not counting the minutes. And so I think kind of our special sauce is we get a lot of referrals from people and we get a lot of repeat business because people think, you know, wow, we paid X, but they gave us like X plus 20 or 25%. We got so much more than we paid for. We don't feel like we did something, you know, extraordinary But I think when you're working in that zone where, like you said, you're feeling like that abundant mentality, you just can't help but over deliver. And the client feels that and they love it, too. It's a win win. It sounds like that's a real secret of leadership. Absolutely. Creating that creating that attitude and culture within your organ, especially a virtual organization where everybody's everybody's in their sweet spot. Everybody's doing what they love to do. And when that synergistically comes together. It's like a, a fusion event going on, right? All this energy comes together and it just massively explodes. Yeah. And I think the best leaders can assemble teams and bring out the very best in all the people mm-hmm. so that 
together they achieve more than any of them could have done on their own. That's a really great definition of leadership. Yeah. Yeah, I, I, oh, go ahead. I, I look at, um, we did work for Ben Zander, who's the conductor of the Boston Philharmonic. And, you know, I told him before I met him, I used to use the analogy that I feel like I'm the conductor of a world-class orchestra because I don't play the piano the best or the violin or the clarinet or the saxophone, but I'm really good at making sure everybody in the orchestra plays really well together and we make great music. And he said, yeah, that is what I do, but you're not a conductor. And I said, oh, <laughs> but I really, I think there is something to that. And he lectures a lot about leadership. He's really iconic when it comes to leadership as a conductor. And so I do see that analogy being very powerful. So let's go to the dark side just a little bit. Um, inevitably, you have conflict. How do you, how do you as a leader deal with the with the conflicts that inevitably arise within your teams and of course with clients so i guess it depends on the nature of the conflict is the short answer okay sometimes you know you can just all put it out there be brutally honest about what's working what's not working uh maybe so there's some miscommunications or some assumptions that are being made that are just incorrect and once you clarify that and shine light on that, it, it allows everyone to kind of recalibrate, reset, and move forward. That's the best case scenario. And that happens. I mean, we're human and people do, you know, miscommunicate and misfire sometimes. I just find that when their mistakes are things that are not going well, if people can admit where it's not working and admit if they screwed up, it's always the cover up, not the screw up that buries you. So I always just try to get people to be kind of transparent and honest from the get go, because I think that's when you can work through it the fastest and the cleanest and without the most uh, headache. Sounds um, to me like you take conflict head on and, and don't avoid it like many leaders do and don't try to shove it under the rug. Yeah, that that always ends up biting you down the road. I mean, I, I it's not comfortable, but I think I've worked for some really strong leaders in my career. And I've just seen that the more open and honest and transparent you can be, the more direct you can be, the better off you end up being. And I think it's the people who try and hide the ball or pretend like it's not there or they intentionally hide or lie about it, that's a disaster in the making. I just never see that end up working out. So, but there are situations where people just don't get along for whatever reason. It can be their value systems don't sync up. You know, I had to fire a client in my first year of business and it was really hard to do. Um, but we just were really in different places. The guy was a jerk. He treated my team very poorly. We were doing really good work for him. He was uh, very egotistical and narcissistic and we were doing PR. And so the better job we were doing, we were like creating this monster because he kept seeing his name in print. And it was like feeding this beast that was just getting more and more intolerable. And I realized three months, it, the guy was, uh, he signed a one-year uh, 
contract for $10,000 a month. It was a six-figure engagement. And on month three, I, I basically said, we need to shake hands and part ways. I don't think we're the right team for you. And he said, what do you mean? Are you firing me as a client? And I said, I, I guess we are. Yeah, I think I think you're going to be better served by another another partner because I realized, you know, it's my company. It's my name on the door. And for people that knew him well, they knew what a jerk this guy was. And I didn't want all of his less jerky friends saying, well, if she can do that for him and he's such an SOB, imagine what she could do for me. I didn't want to build my business with clients like that. And I just had this wake up moment where it was like, I don't care how much this guy's willing to pay me. I don't, I don't want this to be what I get up for every day. It doesn't feel good. It's, it doesn't feel good to my team. We're not enjoying it. We're not having fun. And the better we get, the worse the is like the hole keeps getting deeper. And I think, was it Winston Churchill that says, when you find yourself in a hole, stop digging. And, right. <laughs> you know, and I thought, you know, I think we, we have to course correct. And again, it's not easy. It's not fun, but it ended up being absolutely the right decision. And within like a month or two, we had replaced him with much better clients. And it really sent an important signal to the team that like, I have your back. We're not going to we're not going to grow like this. This is not the way we want to build this business. And I just think it was the kick in the pants we needed at a really important, it was the first six months of my company and it really paid off in spades. Wow. That, I mean, that goes to your, fundamentally goes to your values and saying that if, 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 if my clients are not aligned with my values, this relationship is not going to work. Exactly. And I think and that's the same with your colleagues. If you have people on your team that are not, they don't have, you know, the culture of your team matters so much to the strength of your business. And if there's a, you know, bad apple in the bunch or people are starting to get really threatened and starting to feel insecure, that can permeate and ruin everything that you're building. So I think you have, you have to protect your, you know, what makes you special, your core values are so critical to the secret sauce that makes each company unique and special. So you have a, a virtual team. I mean, and I presume everybody's kind of working out of their home or they have their own offices and, the, Correct. and, and they're all over the world. Correct. Do you ever get everybody together? So we had talked about it early on. Um, we have never done a full Mavens and Moguls kind of powwow, to be brutally honest. And during the pandemic, obviously, that was never going to happen. Right. I mean, you know, the average age of my group, these are people that are seasoned professionals. We don't have 25-year-old Mavens and Moguls. These are people that have built really great careers. And like myself, they don't want to retire in the classical sense. They want to keep working, but they want to work on their terms. Mm -hmm. And so what's beautiful about this is people opt into every project. You know, they're not employees, they're contractors. Uh, so um, I think the reason why people love being part of this network is you've got very simpatico, like-minded, smart, seasoned professionals that you can, you know, use as thinking partners and kind of get in the trenches together and solve these really fun, meaty problems. 
but you don't have like we all built very successful careers prior to joining Mavens and Moguls, and we did the offsites and we did the travel for work. And we're just at a very different stage in our life now. And so that's not really what people need. We definitely Zoom and get on conference calls in pockets. But I've got about four dozen people in the group in different time zones. And I don't want people to have to be on a phone call at 10 o'clock at night or eight o'clock in the morning. Like that's just not kind of the culture of our, our group today. So um, there are no kind of, you know, let's all go to the boondoggle resort and wear the sweatshirt. And, you know, <laughs> that was a different part of my life. I could just see, I could just picture it. <laughs> so I want to turn the conversation. This, Of course, this podcast is called Listening with Leaders. And as you know, I'm really big into listening, uh, as obviously you are. And I want to just explore that a little bit more. We Earlier, you talked about the importance of listening. Could you elaborate on that? Uh, how is it? How is it that you develop the skill that you have? And why did you develop it? Because there are very few people who I've talked to both professionally and, and as an, as a journalist and a podcaster that are like you, I mean, you're really quite unique. So when I worked at Procter and Gamble, right out of business school, a little bit like a bull in a China shop, you know, you just spent two years pretending like you were CEO of all these big companies solving these big problems. And then you get thrown into the work world and I felt like, you know, I was just trying to impress everyone in every meeting and make the smartest comments and be the biggest voice in the room. And I had a boss early on at P&G and she was very quiet. Um, and yet when she opened her mouth, it was like everyone wanted to lean in and listen to her because she was very choiceful in where she uh, commented, how she commented. And that, you know, I feel like I was always the one talking in meetings. And I think people started to tune me out or, you know, you just noticed I the roll. reaction was a little bit like, up oh, here she goes again, right. you know, Miss Problem Solver with another inserting her solution into the mix. And working for this woman really made me pay attention that there are a lot of leadership styles out there. And mine wasn't really necessarily the most effective. And I think people were getting tired of me, frankly. Um, so I really tried to emulate the things that were really strong about her. Now, again, I'm more extroverted and gregarious. She was more introverted and quiet. But I have that inside of me, too. And I tried to cultivate that. And... Um, you know, at Coke, it was a very different role because I was the number two person globally in marketing. So I worked for the the guy who was really like magnetic and he was the guy that did new Coke and diet Coke. So kind of a legend in the world of marketing. He was a very loud, big personality, big voice in the room. So I was, I was definitely more in, behind the scenes and I could, again, observe more than it was his voice that everyone was waiting for, not mine. But watching him and watching people deal with him, again, helped me to cultivate a different side of my natural tendency. I think what really left the strongest impression for me 
that made me the best listener was the Great Recession, 2008, 9, and 10. Um, so leading into that, our company was going gangbusters. I was sitting on a bunch of boards and I was giving a lot of talks at conferences all over the world. And as you probably remember, things came to a screeching halt at the oh, end boy, of do I ever. 2008. Boy, howdy do I ever. <laughs> yeah. And um, because uh, I was on boards on the West Coast and on the East Coast, I had signed up for all these conferences to be a speaker, a panelist. So I looked at my dance card going into 2009, 2010, and I could see that I was going to be in San Francisco, Chicago, New York, Washington, Boston. Um, I, you know, I just looked at the horizon and so many of my clients that were about to launch these big projects, everything got put on hold. People were, you know, conserving their cash. So what I decided to do, um, again, it was kind of a political, you know, cycle. And I started watching all these politicians go on what they called their listening tours. And they go to these different audiences and markets and they go talk to people and ask questions and sit back and take notes. And I thought, you know, I'm going to be in San Francisco for this week in May. I'm going to be in Chicago this week in September. I'm going to be in New York this week in uh, January. Why don't I go on a listening tour? And everybody had basically hit the pause buttons and people were trying to keep their head down. Nobody wanted to get laid off. Everybody wanted to look busy and important, but there was not much going on. So I literally sent out a bunch of emails and made phone calls and said, Hey, I'm going to be in your town on these dates. Any chance I can grab you for lunch or coffee or breakfast? I have a bunch of questions and I'd love to hear your perspective. Well, I got meetings with everybody. I mean, when I tell you my dance card, I knew I had my board meeting on a certain day or a board dinner on a certain night, or I was giving a speech at a conference on it, you know, at, at a particular time. But except for that, I just wanted to fill my dance card. And so for a couple of months going into the Great Recession, I would get on a plane to head out to a conference or a, a meeting. I'd hit the ground and I I had meetings every single day. Wow. And I got to tell you, it was such an eye opener. A, I think people needed to meet and talk because they wanted the normalcy of like, um, I'm an important person. I have an opinion and everyone loves to talk and loves that someone's paying attention to their perspective. So I had a captive audience and they love the fact that, you know, they could tell their boss or their board or whatever, oh, you know, I've got this meeting, I can, you know, and, and if I were speaking at a conference, a lot of times when you're a speaker at a conference, they say, you know, we'll comp you some tickets if you want to bring anybody. So I'd offer it to the people in those towns. I'd say, if you'd like to come to the customer relationship management conference or the women in business conference or whatever, I'd love you to come as my guest. I'm going to be speaking at you know, 2.30 today, and there are a lot of other great speakers. And so people just loved it. And they just, it was like catharsis. They wanted to talk. They wanted to, you know, learn. They want, And the fact that there was something productive and positive happening in the 
in the kind of news cycle of all this really depressing Debbie Downer news about the the Great Recession, I think people just felt great about it. And what I realized city after city after city is these themes were starting to emerge. And I would send out emails to people and say, thank you so much for meeting with me while I was in San Francisco last month. You know, I've I've now been to a couple of cities and I just want to tell you what I'm hearing. And people loved it because they felt like they were on this listening tour with me. And one of the themes that came out before the recession, we did almost uh, the, the overwhelming majority of our work was um, retainer based. Companies would put us on retainer and, you know, we would do projects for six months, 12 months, whatever. With the recession, People did not want to do retainers anymore. They were they, that was too much of a cash commitment and a cash draw. So our pro, our work shifted from retainer work to project work, and the, we we'd, we pretty much had almost exclusively projects at the depths of the recession. And projects have a beginning, middle, and end, and there's a return on that investment. You pay X, you get Y. You know, here's the deliverable. And the projects, whereas before the recession, a project might be forty, fifty, sixty thousand dollars. During the recession, the budgets got really uh, cut a lot. And what we learned from our our conversations in the listening tour was projects needed to be about twenty or twenty five thousand dollars, much smaller chunks. Now, when that project ended, there could be another project. But if the project were forty or fifty thousand, they had to get approval from their boss, from the president of the company, from the board. So literally, we had pitched a piece of business to a startup. Things were like we had the greatest conversation. It was such like a mind meld. They loved it. They loved the proposal. And at the end of the day, um, they they said, you know, we want to get going. Like, let's start as soon as we possibly can. And so I said, great, I'll send you the invoice and we can get started next week. Well, I sent the first invoice and it was like a $35,000 project and they were going to pay half up front and half upon completion. And I send the invoice radio silent. So I wait a few days and I email the CEO. And I said, just want to make sure we're good to go. I know we had said we were going to get started next week. You can bring a check to the kickoff. And he says, can we talk? Uh, can you call me at three o'clock? And I said, sure. And I picked up the phone, called him at three. And he said, Paige, I got to tell you, we really need to get this work done. We really do. And I wish we could start next week. Unfortunately, we're not going to be able to get going as I had planned. And I said, I'm so sorry to hear that. What changed? So, well, I got your invoice. And the problem right now is um, I can't, I am authorized to write checks up to $10,000 without further. This is the president of CEO of a startup, venture back startup. But in the depths of the Great Recession, anything more than a $10,000 check he had to go to his board and he said, I just had a board meeting last week. I am not going to call an extra board meeting to get a check. 
if we wait a month, I'll just tack it onto the agenda. And I said, wait, 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 Bill, what if we broke it into three payments? Could we do it like, you know, a third, a third, a third? And he said, well, yeah, if we could do that, we could start on Monday. I said, okay, we're, I don't care if you put half up front or a third up front. It doesn't matter to me. I just want y'all to realize we're starting the process and you've got skin in the game. He goes, well, if you can do that, we're, we're good to go. And so at the end of the day, you know, a $25,000 project that's 12,5 and 12,5 versus 8,000, 8,000, 9,000, it's, it's all the same. And what was so interesting, and the project went off gangbusters, they learned a ton and they hired us to do another project right away after. Um, and what was really interesting is clients ended up still spending six figures with us but they just did it in smaller chunks. They did four or five projects a year, not one retainer. And that is the power of listening. That is the power of listening. And it's just amazing. Somebody said to me uh, when I was sharing this story, they said, you know, the truth is, Paige, if you were a guy, he probably would not have admitted to you what the real problem was because he would have been too embarrassed to say he needed his board's approval to get a check more than $10,000. But he, for whatever reason, you know, he was willing to tell you the truth and you were able to solve the problem like it was like nothing. And so sometimes, you know, just having a great relationship or not being a threat to people or whatever, having that kind of conversation, it's really amazing when, you know, again, un, with complete honesty and transparency, it's not really a problem at all. It was just kind of the situation that was out of my control. It had nothing to do with me. Well, you handled it beautifully. We're kind of coming up to the end here. I have one more question for you. Yes. This is the question I ask all my guests. What is one thing, tell us one thing about yourself that we wouldn't know unless you told us. Oh my goodness. There's a million things about me. That, <laughs> <laughs> um, well, it's kind of silly, but when I was a little kid, my grandparents, I grew up in Tennessee and my grandparents lived in Arkansas and we used to go visit them on the weekends once a month. And when we were driving, it was about an hour drive. And when we were driving, I would say to my dad, are we there yet? Are we there yet? And he'd say, as soon as you can say the alphabet backwards perfectly, we'll be there. And I was like a little kid. And so it took me, you know, I'd be like Z, Y, and then I'd screw up and I have to go back. <laughs> so then a month or two later, um, I'd been practicing. And so I said to my dad, are we there yet? Well, how much longer? And he said, well, as soon as you can say the alphabet backwards perfectly. And I learned it and I could do it. Now I can do it faster than I could do the alphabet forward. But it was literally something that I learned when I was about 10 years old. So it's like a superpower, I guess. Well, Paige, thank you so much for all of your insights. Um, I know that everybody listening has learned a lot from you. And I just really appreciate your time today. Thank you. Thank you so much, Doug. It's been so fun chatting with you today. I really appreciate it too. All right, everybody. We'll see you next time.
Doug Knoll here. Thank you so much for listening to Listening with Leaders. If you are a successful executive leader who would like to be on this program, please visit podcast.dougnoll.com slash podcast. If you got something out of this interview, would you please share this episode on social media? Just do a quick screenshot with your phone and text it to a friend or post it on the socials. If you know someone that would be a great guest, tag them on the social media to let them know about the show and include the hashtag listeningwithleaders. I love seeing your posts and guest suggestions. We are regularly putting out new episodes and content. To make sure you don't miss any episodes, go ahead and subscribe. Your thumbs up, ratings, and reviews go a long way to help promote the show and mean a lot to me and my team. Want to know more? Go to my website, dougnoll.com, or follow me on LinkedIn, Facebook, and Instagram. That's at Douglas E. Noel. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you on the next show.